morning. Happy Thanksgiving in advance. Hope you have a great Thanksgiving week. Uh, if you would, just real quickly, again, you know, it's the end of the year, so we talk about year-end giving every Sunday, you know, for the next few weeks. If you would, look at the giving section of your program. We've, we've got a pretty big deficit that we have to make up in the next, uh, you know, number of weeks before the end of the year. It's about a $500,000 deficit. Just, we would just ask you to please consider in your year-end giving, including City Church, uh, we would appreciate that very much, and uh, we promise that we will be good stewards of the resources that you give us. And you guys have always been a very generous congregation. I have no reason to think that you won't continue to be, but just would appreciate you considering us in our year in giving. Pastor and author uh, Tony Campolo once told a story about uh, speaking at a church in Oregon and being asked while he was there to pray for a man uh, who had cancer. He says, a few days later, by the middle of the week, he received a telephone call from the man's wife. And she told him her name and uh, reminded him who she was. And she said, you know, you prayed for my husband. Uh, he had cancer. And then she told him that um, he had died. Campolo says this. He says, I felt terrible. But the woman continued. And she, she said, don't. Don't feel bad. When he came into church that Sunday, he was filled with anger. He knew he was going to be dead in a short period of time, and he hated God. He was 58 years old, and he wanted to see his children and grandchildren grow up. He was angry that this all-powerful God didn't take away his sickness and heal him. He would lie in bed, and he would curse God. Uh, the more his anger grew towards God, the more miserable he was to everybody around him. It was an awful thing to be in his presence. After you prayed for him, a peace had come over him and a joy had come into him. She said, Tony, the last three days have been the best days of our lives. We've sung, we've laughed, we've read scripture together, we prayed. Oh, they've been wonderful days. And I called to thank you for praying for him. Campolo says, and then she said something that was incredibly profound. She said, he wasn't cured, but he was healed. We're in a series on the book of James called Authentic Christianity. In fact, we're, <laughs> we're five weeks into this series so far, and we've only made it through verse 18. I hope you're not too discouraged by that. I'll try to pick up the pace a little bit so that we're not still in James by November of next year. Um, if you would, find James chapter 1 uh, in your Bibles this morning. James chapter 1. Uh, it's in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to use one of those in the pew racks in front of you. Uh, just reminder that James was the half-brother of Jesus. He was the pastor of the largest church in Jerusalem. He's writing to people who are suffering. Now, their suffering isn't quite like the suffering that the man that Tony Campolo prayed for, uh, but they were suffering persecution for their faith in Christ. But you know, suffering is suffering. And as a pastor who is involved in the lives of his people, James knows quite well uh, the toll that suffering takes on people. What he has to say to these first century people to whom he is writing is as relevant to us today as it was then. Because even though times haven't changed, uh, excuse me, even though times have changed, people haven't changed. Now, uh, by way of review, let's go back to the verse that we ended with last week. James chapter 1, verse 18. Verse 18. He says, God chose to give us birth through the word of truth 
uh, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Now, uh, what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about being born again. He's not talking about physical birth. He's saying that through the word of truth, which is a reference to the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, if you have believed upon him, you have been born again. God gives you a new nature, a new power, the life of Christ in you. Remember, I told you last week uh, that at another church I pastored, every week we would repeat this, Christ died for me to give his life to me, to live his life through me. That's the gospel, Christ in you, Christ living through you. And by the way, I just want to make one comment. Real quickly, I want you to understand that Christianity is the only faith in the entire world that has the audacity to say that you are born again. Like no other religious system says that. They all say, well, if you want to be approved of by God, you have to obey the rules and you have to follow this code of conduct, etc., etc. Only Christianity says, no, that won't work. You must be born again. And God can do that. Christianity, the only faith system that says that. And then James says that the purpose of being a born again is that you can be, and the word he uses is a kind of first fruits of all God created. Now, people in an agrarian economy understood this word, first fruits. First fruits were the, the choice parts of the harvest that you were to offer up to God. You didn't do with them whatever you wanted to do with them. You didn't sell them. You didn't eat them. You didn't store them for a rainy day. You gave them as an offering to God. And that's what James is saying, is that if you're born again, your life now, it's no longer your own. You are to give it as an offering to God. He's saying, let me put it in these terms. He's saying, listen, now that you're born again, you are not just in a holding pattern in this life, waiting for the next life. This life has meaning and purpose. You're not just ordinary people living ordinary, mundane lives, serving yourselves and your own little kingdoms. God redeemed you. God rebirthed you so that you could be a testimony to the miraculous power of God in this life. You've been called into the grandeur of a kingdom and a life much greater, much more beautiful than your own. And this is what James is concerned about all the way throughout this book, that the gospel isn't just an intellectual thing, that it isn't just a theological truth that you agree with. He's concerned that it transforms your day-to-day life. And we've been saying that the message of James is that authentic faith transforms ordinary lives into heroic lives. People who've been born again through the gospel, living like they have supernatural power, whose lives showcase what it's like to live under the rule and the reign of God. And it's fascinating because beginning in verse 19, James now begins to get very, very practical about what this kind of life looks like. And it might be a surprise to you where he begins. Look at verse 19. James says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become anger, uh, excuse me, angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. I wonder if that surprises you. 
that James begins with our speech and the anger that often fuels it. Does that surprise you? As I said, James is a pastor. He cares about these people. You can hear it in verse 19, just the way that he says, dear, dear brothers and sisters. And because he's a pastor, he understands people and the toll that suffering takes on them. And I suspect you know this too, that when times are tough, uh, when your nerves are rattled, when you're anxious, when you're hurt, when you're suffering in some way, you have a tendency to lash out in anger and to speak angry, thoughtless, and hurtful words. Whether those words are directed at God or whether they're directed at someone else whom you perceive to be the cause of your suffering, you often say things out of anger that you later regret. And you know, maybe, maybe that's why social media is such a toxic place these days. Maybe that's why our nation is so polarized. Maybe despite our relative, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe despite our relative prosperity and our technological advancements and the explosion of information that is available to us, maybe we're suffering more than we let on. Maybe that's why we're so angry. Because when you eliminate the reality of a sovereign and just God, what is there to give life meaning? Perhaps we're so toxic because we're suffering a crisis of meaninglessness. And so we lash out at one another. We said this before throughout the series that desperate, despairing people often do desperate, despairing things. But not only do they do desperate, despairing things, they say desperate, despairing things. And even if the larger context of this passage wasn't about suffering, if as a culture we could abide by James' admonition, it would make an enormous difference to day-to-day life, wouldn't it? I mean, just think about social media. What would it be? What would social media be like if people were quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry? Oh, man. Perhaps Twitter, for instance, would be less of a hellscape and more socially constructed. What if instead of shouting one another down or suppressing one another's speech or canceling one another for expressing diverse viewpoints, what if people were to say, I want to hear more about your viewpoint. I may not agree, but I want to understand more about where you're coming from. Please explain. What a difference that would make, right? But understand, James is not writing to secular people. He's writing to born-again people. And let's be honest, born-again people have a difficult time with our anger and our speech, don't we? I mean, how many relationships have been destroyed in churches by careless, angry words? So I want to just think for just a moment. I want to think about anger for just a moment. What would you say uh, is the opposite of anger? If I were to ask you, what's the opposite of anger, what, what would your response be? What would be the first thing you would say? See, I think for most people, uh, they would say self-control. Like, like, don't be so angry, have self-control. But I want you to notice what James says in verse 20, just after he has said to be slow to anger. Look at verse 20 again. He says, be slow to anger. Why? Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, therefore, okay, 
Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. And I've highlighted the word for you. Humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. So what does James say is the opposite of anger? What does he say? In other words, what's the cure for anger? It's interesting. He says that the cure for anger, it's not self-control. It's humility. Does that surprise you? Humbly accept the word that's planted in you. Now, if the cure for anger is humility, what does that say about the cause of anger? Well, the cause of anger is pride. Now, I want to make sure that we're very, very careful here because I want you to notice that James does not say never be angry. He says be slow to anger. Now, why? Why is that important distinction? Because there is such a thing as good anger, righteous anger, not self-righteous anger, but righteous anger, righteous anger that motivates you to help people to correct some uh, injustice, let's say. In 1979, some of you may know this story, in 1979, a young man by the name of Marcus Brown, he was 18 years old, he was killed by a, a drunk driver on a Florida highway. His mother, Becky, channeled her grief and her anger into action, and she formed a local coalition of parents who had uh, also lost children to drunk driving, and she began a campaign to increase awareness and prevention, and the group came to be known as Matt, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. And over the years, that group has changed the culture and the laws surrounding drunk driving, and they've saved hundreds of thousands of lives. See, there is such a thing as righteous anger. When Jesus uh, arrived in the temple, some of you know this story from the Gospels, when he arrived in the temple and he found money changers exploiting the poor and crowding out seekers and worshipers, uh, he was angry and he acted on that anger. He drove, out, he drove the money changers out. There is a way to be good and mad. When we get angry about the things that God gets angry about, when we act in ways that promote well-being and the purposes of God. It can be a virtue. It can actually be, that kind of anger can actually be heroic. But I want you to notice that James isn't talking about that kind of anger here. How does he describe it? He, he, he calls it human anger. And he says human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And if humility is the cure for human anger, the difference between righteous, godly anger and human anger is pride. It's, it's the reason you get so angry is pride. Have you ever thought about that? Well, that's it. When you get angry, not the righteous kind of anger, the human kind of destructive anger, isn't it a result of pride? Specifically because you're trying to save face in some way. You're trying to preserve your image of yourself. Either someone or something is threatening something that makes you feel good about yourself. Perhaps reality is threatening the way that you want to see yourself, and so you lash out at, at God, maybe. It's, it's, it's pride. You get angry because you're trying to preserve some image that you have of yourself. Years ago, uh, my wife and I lived just a few blocks away from uh, the church that I pastored at the time. And we had just moved uh, 
particularly clo- uh, t- uh, specifically to be closer to that church. And uh, Amy was a stay-at-home mom at the time. We had three preschool boys. And one night, uh, I-, I told her, I said, you know, it's going to be so nice now that we've, we've moved so close to the church that I'm going to be able to come home for lunch almost every day. And I thought, of course, this would be a great delight to her to have me home for lunch. She was very clear and to the point. She said, I married you for better or for worse, but not for lunch. Uh, (laughs) It's going to disrupt my day, and it will make it hard for me to get the things done that I have to get done. Now, I was hurt by this, and so I just blurted out, and I would suggest that you never do this, uh, guys. But I was hurt, and and so in my anger, I said, what do you have to do that my coming home would disrupt? Uh, That took a while. Uh, for the answer. Uh, but do you see what happened? I wanted, my, I, I wanted to see myself as the light of her day. And when she said I wasn't, I was hurt. And so I, I, I lashed out. It was, it was pride. And you see, that's what happens. Maybe it's a job you wanted. Getting that job would have made you feel so good about yourself. You, you would have felt worthy. But someone else got it. And so you get angry, and you say something hurtful in your anger. You lash out. Or maybe it's that you like to be right. Like that's how you see yourself. You see yourself as the smartest person in every room you're in. And when someone proves you wrong about something, you get angry and you you lash out at them. So you see, this is the point that James is making, that the cause for our anger is pride. And see, when, when James says, humbly accept the word planted in you, uh, do you understand what he's saying? I, 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 think, it's, I think it's fascinating. He, he's referring back to verse 18. You remember he talked there at verse 18? We read it a few minutes ago. What was the word that he was talking about there? And he said, he said that God chose to give his birth through the word of truth. Remember what that word was? That we, he was taught, we were saying that the word of truth is the gospel. And so what James is saying here is that the gospel frees you from having to save face. Having to protect the image that you have of yourself. How? How does it do that? Well, think about it. If you were born again, if you came to Christ through the cross, you've accepted the word of truth, the gospel. What does the gospel of Jesus Christ say about you? Well, it says that you are a deeply loved moral failure. That's what it says about you. You're a deeply loved moral failure. You're a deeply loved, self-centered, deceptive, manipulative, hateful, selfish, lustful, covetous, prideful person. And that's on your best days. So what face are you trying to save? You've already admitted all of this about yourself by coming to Christ, having to come to Christ through the cross. And since Christ loves you even with all of that, why are you trying to save face? What are you trying to save? What image are you trying to preserve? And so James is saying that the gospel frees you from having to prove yourself or save face, which in turn takes away your anger It makes you more humble, which also frees you to listen more and to have to talk about yourself and defend yourself less. I think I'm correct about this. I think I'm correct about the the 
quote and the reference, uh, but I'm going to paraphrase it. Uh, I, I think it was in his book, The Freedom uh, of Self-Forgetfulness, that a pastor and author by the, Tim, by, by the name of Tim Keller wrote this. And, and again, I'm paraphrasing. But he said, if you ever met a truly humble person, you wouldn't walk away thinking, gee, what a humble person that was. You'd just walk away thinking, gee, they were really interested in me. <laughs> and you see, that's what James is describing here. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Now that you're born again, you don't have to do that stuff anymore. Now, I want to think about some practical implications of this for a moment. See, I subscribe, and I've seen this happen so many times over the years. I subscribe to the the idea that... um, Nothing happens by coincidence. And so it's no coincidence, and as I said, I've seen this happen so many times over the years, it's no coincidence that this particular passage comes up for us on the Sunday before Thanksgiving. Now, why do I say that? Why is that so significant? (laughs) A lot of you are going to be spending time with family members this week. Around the Thanksgiving table, family members who have polarizing viewpoints on political issues and economic issues and religious and moral issues, they're likely highly opinionated, they have opinions about parenting, they have opinions about everything. Your uncle might have one too many beers and say something politically controversial. Your blue-haired 20-year-old niece might shock the family with something that she learned in her gender studies class. Your sister-in-law might tell you that she learned on TikTok that mayonnaise is the cure for COVID. I don't know. Who knows what what you'll hear. The gospel says, the gospel says, you don't have to defend your viewpoints. You don't have to defend yourself. So be quick to listen. Slow to speak. Slow to anger. See what a difference it might make in your family this Thanksgiving. If you did that, you don't have to be so opinionated. You don't have to lead with everything you think and everything that you believe so that everybody hears your viewpoint because that makes you feel so good about yourself. Listen to theirs. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Here's another implication. The Gottman Institute, uh, I, I probably talked about it before, it's the premier marriage research organization in the world. They've, for 30, 40 years, they've studied thousands and thousands of couples. And in their study on newlyweds, they've found that the couples with the greatest success in marriage are those who can listen to one another and accept one another's influence. In other words, they allow the other person to influence them. But guess which spouse usually has the most difficult time accepting influence from the other? Guess which one? It's men. Yeah. Listen to this. Listen to this. This is a stat from from, uh, the Gottman Institute. Even in the first few months of marriage, men who allow their wives to influence them have happier marriages and are less likely to divorce than men who resist their wives' influence. Statistically speaking, when a man is not willing... To allow his wife to influence him, to share power with his partner, there is an 81% chance that his marriage will self-destruct. Surprising? 
See, guys, I think we have to be honest with ourselves. Why don't we accept our wives' influence more easily? And I think it's because our image of what it means to be a man is that we have all the answers, that we have to be right, we have to know stuff. That's what you thought your dad was, the guy with all the answers. So it's what you think you have to be. And so you, you save face. It's about pride. You have to always be right. I mean, this would, this would impact your marriage if you, if you understood the power of the gospel. Make a difference in your marriage. Here's another. Here's another implication. And that sounds like we're taking off when that comes on, doesn't it? It sounds like a spaceship. Uh, here's another. When someone criticizes you, friend, boss, employee, whoever, and the instinct is to defend yourself, and, it, and, it, and it start, that starts to rear its head, and you feel it coming up, ask yourself this. Why am I defending myself? Why am I so certain that I'm right and they're wrong? Why am I so unwilling to hear what they have to say? I already know that I'm a deeply loved moral failure. How can I be so sure that what they're telling me about myself isn't right? James says the gospel takes away the need to be right, the need to save face, the need to defend yourself all the time. It takes all of that away, and it frees you to be slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to anger. Now, I want you to notice how neatly James segues into verse 22. There's a connection here. I'll show you in just a moment. He says in verse 22, do not merely listen to the what? What is it? What, what does he say? Do not merely listen to what? The word. We've, now, this is the third time that, that's come up, right? Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word, there we go again, but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. Now think about that, freedom. Freedom to not have to be so consumed with yourself. Whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Do. do you see, can you see the connection? Really, there, there's a couple of connections that I want to show you this morning. First, James is saying this. He's saying, he's saying, work the truth of the gospel into your life. Like, work it into your day-to-day -day life. Don't just acknowledge the gospel intellectually and then forget it. Let it do its work in humbling you. See, before you were born again, you lived your entire life trying to prove yourself, justify yourself, defend yourself. And he's saying, let the gospel transform you by humbling you and freeing you from all of that. Don't continue to live with the self-deception that you're more together than you are. You're not. You're going to have to unlearn a whole bunch of your natural tendencies and learn about the new life that Christ has installed on the hard drive of your soul that he wants to live through you. And that... 
The only way to learn about that comes through regular interaction with God's truth. And you see, the problem is that God's truth is going to challenge you. It's going to expose you. It's going to convict you. It's going to counsel you. It's going to reveal the ugliness of the depths of your heart. But it's also going to comfort you that you are deeply loved. That through the cross, all of the ugliness, all of the sin, all of the moral failure is covered by the blood of Christ. But you see, if all of the challenging and exposing and convicting and counseling and revealing you, if that all makes you angry, you're going to have a hard time growing into the heroic person that God has called you to be. So let the gospel humble you. Let it do its work. You have to, see, here's the thing. Naturally, none of us like people telling us what to do with our lives. But when you're born again and you understand the freedom that the Scriptures bring and that the Gospel brings to you, you learn to love having God tell you how to live. Because you realize that He's calling you to something far grander, far more purposeful, far more meaningful than the ordinary life that you would have lived otherwise. And so He's saying, work the Gospel of truth into your day-to-day life. That's, that's one of the connections he's making. But here's, here's, here's the second that I want you to see, second connection. And that is that gospel transformation and relational maturity go hand in hand. Um, gospel transformation and relational maturity go hand in hand, and here's what I mean by that. If you're being changed by the gospel, your relationships will reflect that. So you can't, you can't be a person who's growing spiritually and everywhere around you, all of your relationships are just like it's a wasteland of people who've been broken by you. Those two things don't go hand in hand because Christianity isn't just intellectual it's transformational so you don't have to be right all the time you don't walk around offended all the time everything somebody says offends you and then you've got to stand up you'll forgive people you'll seek peace and unity with people you'll be quick to listen slow to speak slow to anger Christianity isn't about accumulating Bible knowledge and theology for the sake of Bible knowledge and theology. It's about gospel transformation. And when the gospel transforms you, it also transforms your relationships as well. See, what James is saying here in this passage is, is that heroic living begins by allowing the gospel to strike a death blow to your pride, which will reduce your anger, which will affect your relationships. Do you remember? Do you remember at the beginning? And I, you know, I told you about the uh, about the about Tony Campolo praying for the man, and, and and his wife called Tony Campolo. And do you remember what the wife said about the husband? Um, she she said that he was so angry, it was awful to be around him. And you see, that's that's what your pride does. It makes you just. It makes you angry. And it makes you awful to be around. (laughs) Now, I need to say two things before we wrap up. One is this. 
Even though you're born again, you will not do this perfectly. You will always wrestle with pride, and you will always wrestle with anger. And so what this passage, excuse me, what, what this passage should do is drive you in humble consciousness of who you are to your knees for God's help to say, once again, Father, I get this so wrong. Shower me with your grace so that in some small way where I live and with those whom I live near, that I would heroically, in the power of the gospel of truth, live. Like I would live humbly. But second, you need to understand that there's a sense in which all of Scripture is one big anger story. Do you realize that? All of Scripture is one big anger story. Here's what I mean. On the one hand, you have the holy, righteous God who, full of righteous anger, has a zeal for his cause and for people and for what he wants to do in the world. And anything that gets in his way receives his wrath. So that, that's, that's the one side of, of the story. The other side of the story is that there is the anger of man, this unholy anger of man. We want our selfish way. We're angry when anything is in our way, getting what we want, getting the, uh, you know, the self-adulation that I want, and that anger is our doom. And you see, these two angers, they course their way through Scripture, and you know they can't coexist. You know they, they go ultimately in different directions. And you know some moment that these two angers, like they're going to collide. And it's going to be an explosion. And there's going to be an enormous amount of carnage. And what's fascinating is that those two angers do actually collide. In this horrible moment and this glorious moment. At the same time. Those two angers collide on the cross of Jesus Christ because the anger of God takes Jesus to the cross and the anger of man takes Jesus to the cross. But Jesus there on the cross bears the full anger of God and the full anger of man so that we could be free. Free from the need to save face, free to love, free to care about other people. That's what transformation looks like. That's what our vision statement says. We want to bring spiritual, social, and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond through a movement of people who are being transformed by the word of truth planted in them, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Work it into your life. Let it do what it's supposed to do. And it'll change more than you think it'll change. Bow your heads with me. Let's, let's pray. Uh, Lord, you know, we, we would all, every one of us here with any sense of self-awareness would confess to you that we're, you know, we're part of the problem with the polarization of our culture, the anger in our culture, um, because we struggle with pride. We we want to defend ourselves. We want our positions to be known. We want, you know, we want what we want. 
And uh, so, Lord, we, we own that. And we do ask that you would shower us with grace, that you would just, through the, you know, the, or that you would encourage us this morning to work the gospel into our lives because it is so freeing. It's so nice to not have to walk around defending yourself all the time and manipulating and controlling so that everything points to how great we are. Man, there's, there's just something so freeing about that. And I pray that even at Thanksgiving, maybe for, for the people in the room today, maybe for some of them it would, you know, they, they'd feel that in their, uh, in their time with families. Pray, Lord, that people would experience it in their marriages, in their workplace, everywhere. Lord, let us be people who live heroically by being quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. For those who have never understood what Christ did for them on the cross, Lord, I pray that today they would bow their knee at the foot of the cross and recognize that they're a sinner too, that they need a Savior and that only Christ can save them and only through Christ can they be born again. That's the only place that transformation occurs. It's the only way. And we pray these things, Lord. Thank you. It's in your name we pray.